0: Keep the bastards honest. The podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on today's episode, we're getting the budget band back together to look at the 2023 federal budget. This episode has literally been weeks in the making since circumstances have emerged that have not been conducive to podcasting. I've been travelling for work, and then the housing crisis suddenly became very personal, as I'm currently in search of a new home to rent and having to attend what feels like every home open in my community, along with 20 or 30 other people in my community while I'm at it. And speaking to colleagues and friends in Sydney and Melbourne, it would appear I'm incredibly fortunate that it's only 20 or 30 other residents at each home open, after the stories I've heard about house hunting in those cities. You might be wondering why we're bothering to release our budget review after all this time, considering the budget was handed down some weeks ago. But listening back to it in the edit... It manages to be both historical, in talking about a budget that everyone's probably forgotten about by now, and also weirdly ahead of its time. Some of the items we discussed are red-hot topics in the media and the political discourse as we speak. I particularly enjoyed our very prescient discussion on the housing crisis. I am joined as ever when there is a budget to be discussed by my co-host Steve Beatty and young Democrat Rhiannon Kernow. For new listeners, Rhiannon is not related to our former leader Cheryl Kernow, which is quite mind boggling when you think about it too much. Rhiannon, Steve, and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we recorded this discussion, and their elders, past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. So, guys, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so so excited to get the budget band back together again. It's been ages since we've had Rhiannon on the pod. And, Rhiannon, just to bring you up to speed, at the end of our last episode where Steve and I were doing our pre-budget wish list, we sort of ended on the note of, of we really, really want to be pleasantly surprised by this budget, but we did not have high hopes of being surprised and I was just saying off air that I had sort of spent the week leading up to the budget essentially planning the title and theme of this particular episode, which was "Meet the New Bastards, Same as the Old Bastards." And I am pleasantly surprised and super pleased that I can't use that um, <laughs> for this episode because we have been, I think, to a degree, at least I have to a degree, been pleasantly surprised. How about how about you? Yeah, look, I think pleasantly surprised is a, a good way of putting it, at the very least, of
1: that. I wasn't disappointed, which is generally the the base level of expectation I have for most budget. I think there is room for improvement. Personally, I, I think for young people, that was one of the things I saw, and I'm sure we'll come up to that, that sort of thing there. But in saying that, to me, this was a lot more long-term approach, which I think was a little bit refreshing that it wasn't just here, have everything, especially with how much discussion has been around the job seeker payments and everything like that. I think there could have been, here's your quick fix budget. And that's not what we saw. So I was I was pleasantly surprised. I don't think disappointed would be the number one word I would use, but there were areas for improvement.
2: Steve, how about you? I, I agree with Rhiannon that the, the, the idea uh, or the theme for this budget seemed to be let's, let's take it slowly, let's take it uh, a, a measured approach, let's think about this as a, as a long-term thing, which is actually my critique of it in, in some respects. The, the downside to this budget is that it didn't go hard enough on some of the things that are urgent. And I think that's where people have sort of looked at it and gone, we, we have some crises and we're not treating those crises with the urgency that they need so yes mm-hmm. we saw new funding on uh, climate change and our transition to renewables it was two billion dollars we should probably be directing an additional 20 billion dollars at that issue to really move the dial on that one we saw some movement on housing but not really in a way that is going to impact the housing crisis or the rental uh, crisis in in the immediate short-term type of thing. And yet it is, a, it is a crisis. We have a large number of people in Australia who are living either under rental stress or homeless, you know, we hear stories every day of people living in cars, single mothers with their car, uh, with their kids in a car, this this type of thing. People living in tents because they can't afford. And and I think for those groups in particular, they would rightly look at this budget and go, "Look, I can't be patient around this. I really do need some more urgent action." Similarly, with job seeker or Study, those sorts of payments, they're going to increase, and that's good. They aren't going to increase. By a relatively small amount and in a way that's not going to significantly change the circumstances of the people who receive them. And again, we're talking about people who've been hit hard by inflation, hard by rental increases, and are having to choose, you know, on a daily basis how many meals they can have each day, whether they can afford their medication for them or their children, you know, like those sorts of things. So, there was definitely a sense of we're in it for the long term. This is our first budget. There'll be two more, at least in this term. We want to go beyond a single-term government, so we're setting ourselves up for that longer term. And those are all good things. For people who are really hit hard right now, it will not feel like enough.
0: Yeah, John Birmingham, uh, he has a private column that he sends out to subscribers. And in one of those columns sort of coined the brilliant term anticipointment which I think <laughs> which uh, I think translates to you know, anticipating that you're going to be disappointed and and he he framed it in terms of what was then the upcoming budget and I think that that really sort of nailed something that people were feeling in the lead up to the budget and I think post budget it was not the crushing disappointment they were expecting it to be and, and and anticipating that it would be but was still in some areas slightly disappointed and and I think again if you're on job seeker you have every right to be bitterly disappointed. Because watching the jo- the job JobSeeker thing, let's rip the band aid off on that first, because I think that's going to, I think all three of us are probably keen to discuss that. The lead up to the budget, the, the government started off with that, oh, we can't afford to do everything, which includes touching JobSeeker, despite the very clear and pressing need, and despite the advice from their own panel that they had empanelled m- to d- advise them on it. And then as the uproar, Became white hot. They started dropping hints that they would raise jobseeker for people who were over fifty five, and that did not have the ameliorating effect that they clearly were hoping it would. Because the outrage went nuclear after that. I think it actually became a real test of the government at that stage. I could think they were. They had severely misread the room and were suddenly f- staring down what could have actually proven to be a crisis for their first term of government and potentially would have then impacted their uh, hoped-for second term. And so we saw in the budget that they actually finally coughed up a me- very meagre rise for everybody on JobSeeker, still keeping the, the ex- extra payments for people over 55. But, again, well, not enough. Like it, mm-hmm. And that's, again, and disappointment
1: yeah, I think when it kind of breaks down, we're looking at, I, th- I think the it works at $2.86 extra per, per day. Um, I don't know what you get for $2.86. That massively changes that. We're looking at that those payments haven't changed for a really long time or in any sort of substantial way. So you, you are really trying to play catch up with the job seeker payments in any changes that you're going to make, which I think is unfortunate in that position of government having to try and remedy that, that but it, it's not enough. It, it really isn't. We're looking at a very minimal amount that doesn't really make any big change for people, especially when we're looking at the amount the cost of living has gone up just recently. At least there was something there, which I don't Mm. think anybody expected there would be anything, as you're sort of saying there, Alana. I think it was just really disappointing overall. I thought there were some other more interesting changes to try and support the cost of living, you know, investment in energy efficiency, loans, um, changes in your needing to go to the doctor for repeat scripts, cheaper medicine. I think those are actually at least practical solutions, I thought, to trying to support the cost of living. And I don't think those should be dismissed either in just focusing on the change to the job seeker payment. You no, know, all those things will support and are, are a very practical option. But the actual money that's coming in, you still need to put food on the table and that that's not going to change. Um, and, and, yeah, yeah it's it, it, I think that one straight up was disappointing,
0: to be honest. Yeah. because And to, just to remind everybody, the the expert panel that they commissioned uh, as part of a deal with, with independent David Pocock recommended that JobSeeker had to raise by at least $100 a week minimum and the government chose to raise it by $20 a week. And certain sections of the community actually, you know, really saw that as a, a bit of an fu to them, which I think is is understandable.
2: Yeah, Rhiannon's point around those other measures is a is is a good one just to dig into, because they they're actually deflationary in their impact. So things like increasing the Medicare rebate for GPs, for example, means that when you or I or, you know, the people who who qualify for it, I think um, there was some restrictions on who it would qualify for that increased rate, but it reduces their cost. The cost of a doctor's visit will go down for something, I think the estimate was 11.3 million people. When they go and visit the doctor, they will pay less and they'll be more able to find a bulk billing doctor at the same time. So increased access to a GP uh, and, and those preventative health services a deflationary impact on the economy, and then also a cost saving from the preventative health comes from more frequent access to that uh, first line of of health defence. That's a good way for the government to spend money in a crisis like this, where we have high inflation and, and we've got that cost of living. Similarly, you've got things like there were 300 additional medicines that were added to the PDS, and something oh, the the increase of prescriptions uh, from 30 days to 60 days, which again will save people money at the pharmacy. Again, like those are things that are deflationary in in nature allowing people to upgrade their home appliances from gas to electricity, install solar panels, do those sorts of things. It was a billion dollars, which isn't a lot, but it gets that program started. And as others have pointed out, we don't have the installers for like a, a, a wartime scale effort when it comes to rewiring the country and electrification of, of our homes, but it does get people started and it sends a message that it's worth investing in. So, and again, like that will bring down energy prices for those people who are able to shift away from gas because that's the most expensive component of home heating and, and electrical bills uh, and, and lighting bills. Shifting people on the single parenting payment, so that change, which will move, we think, something like 57,000 people will have access to that payment. That's a significant shift. It, you know, like that That will have a, a really significant impact on them and, and their finances. And the decrease, the other one was the decrease in the age limit from 60 down to 55 for people to access that higher rate of job seeker in recognition that at some point it becomes hard to get a job. And the likelihood is that you'll be on unemployment benefits for a longer period of time. So like, there, there is certainly that dynamic there that says, okay, we're increasing the rate of benefit for a portion of people and we're doing these other things. Even so, one of the key criticisms and one of the key questions that has kept being asked this week mm-hmm. is, isn't that going to be inflationary? Isn't this mm-hmm. an inflationary budget? Because we ignore the deflationary aspects of some of the stuff that we've just been talking about and focus instead on this on this money. And it's absolutely filtering through. I was having a conversation yesterday morning with someone who's a, a business person who's reasonably well-read and across what's happening in the economy and his first comment to me when I asked him about the budget was, "Oh, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit worried that it's going to drive inflation." It's like, okay, Ugh. you're wrong, and, then, and here's why. But it's interesting yeah. that that's your takeaway message.
0: If a, a you know well reasonably well read business person is taking away that message, then what hope does the, I guess, more casual viewer of politics and budgets and, and finances and economics um, take away? And, and on top of that, I think it speaks, as, as far more eminently qualified people than me have said, it speaks to the financial and economic illiteracy of our media, uh, if that's mm-hmm. the line that they're running with. Because every single economics editor and economics reporter, so the Greg Jericho's, the Shane Wright's, the Ross Gittin's have gone, Nah, guys, this is not inflationary. What are you talking about? But they mm. are, you know, lone voices and a, and a large pack of people going, but it's inflationary. I think you've, you've picked up on something quite interesting in terms of they have tried to spread the benefits around and, you know, so they've done a bit for everybody, which they, they should get credit for. It mm. hasn't been interest group sort of Hunger Games type stuff, which which um, previous governments have uh, have employed. But and I I'm probably nitpicking and I accept that, but it also feels a little bit like for for example, the single parent payment, brilliant. And yeah, they should be applauded for rectifying which what was a shocking mistake by A previous Labor government, the Gillard government, for removing the grandfathering on that payment on the same day as Julia Gillard delivered her misogyny speech. So again, the the optics and the irony there is not lost on anybody. But originally, that payment, uh, the single parent payment, cut out when single parents' kids reached sixteen, got dropped down to eight by both Howard and and Gillard, and now they've restored. Yeah, (laughs) looking like
1: historically almost at that, because I think I was very young when that was delivered, I Mm. don't understand how you can almost half that, you know, and go that that seems like a reasonable measure um, for a single parent to go from 16 that we see as a reasonable figure down to eight just seems extraordinary to me how that could have happened in the first place. And it only seems, and again, maybe in going what this government has now put in place Even coming back to those initial comments I made, it's a bit of a remedy. They're actually playing catch-up with this budget of going, yeah, that was probably, "Mm, we messed up a bit there, here you go, and it's still actually less than it was previously.
0: Well, yes, yeah, because, I mean, look, it's very on brand for Howard to have done it, but for Gillard to then have double debt, because originally it was grandfathered, so if you're already on the single parenting payment, it didn't affect you, Mm. and then Gillard removed the grandfathering and forced all single parents onto it, um, which was you know, again, very off-brand for Labor and particularly for Gillard. And because they're now only raising it up to 14 it begs the question of like, well, why couldn't you have just restored it to 16 Why 14 mm. And Chalmers has been hammered on this and has not, I think, come up with a credible response as to why. And I think it boils down to the fact that there is no credible response. It's just, shall I say, bullshitty nitpicking kind of thing. It, it's, you know, it would not have cost the budget that much more to restore it to 16. And as single parents have said, like between 14 and 18 is when kids cost you the most because they are transitioning out of high school or into high school. There's a lot going on in a kid's life in that period. And you are taking away crucial financial supports and trying to shove their parent out into the workforce. What it also means is 14 is actually the whole
1: Old fashioned, I know New South Wales, it particularly differs, but 14, nine months is when you can get your first job. So if you're now looking at households where their actual incomes are dropped at 14 years old, you're now almost creating those kind of cyclical economic barriers of encouraging kids to get in younger younger into the workforce, leave school earlier and all those other things that kind of come along with, I now need to support a household instead. Whether, I'm not commenting on that of a a true economic, but looking at it as those are our similar numbers, those are our similar ages, what does that practically look like in a household when you now need to support your family?
0: That's an incredibly good point. Yeah, because again, kids of that age are going to feel that they need to contribute and they, they need to do their bit to support their family. And no child should be placed in that position. It's an outrage, particularly in a first-world country.
2: What it means in practice is that that child is potentially not studying, not engaging in sport, not engaging socially with friends because they are now taking on an obligation financially economically to help in the household that's essentially what happens so what you've now got is social impacts health impacts and educational impacts all for the sake of a relatively small amount of money to just say just put it back to 16
0: and those impacts hitting at that age then impacts them for the rest of their lives absolutely because the number i I've not done the research on this, and there may not have, you know, there may not be any studies to support it, but this is my opinion, is that those kids impacted in that fashion, that reduces the likelihood that they will go on to further study, so to you know, uni, TAFE, or apprenticeships. Or, you know, all the study and all the activities that are supposed to be setting you up for your future success are going to get impacted by the fact that they've had to take up part-time work along with their school studies.
2: Or else miss yeah. out on the economic benefits. That come mm-hmm. from having that additional money in the in the household, so yeah. you know, less less able to buy clothes, less able to eat regularly, less able to afford the the medicines that they might require, mm-hmm. less uh, able to engage in school and after school activities. One way or another, they're going to wear it. And yesterday, they qualified and needed that money, and today, because they're fourteen and one day, they no longer do. And now you've got a choice. Like that's nonsensical to me and the th- the thing about it so in his interview um immediately after delivering the budget he went into the abc studio and you know like the the studio at, at parliament house i guess for the abc and he gave an interview and he was asked the question why didn't you do more particularly for for some of these groups that we, we're talking about and his answer was along the lines of we did as much as we can afford We've done what we can afford to do," was what he said. So here we are making these, you know, these tweaks, these little choices around. Well, let's make it 14 instead of 16. Let's raise JobKeeper by $40 a day instead of uh, a higher amount because that's what we can afford to do. And this is where they've set themselves up because in that budget as well, we still have, over the Ford estimates, $69 billion in state, street tax cuts. Yeah. So and that's I'm the sorry elephant we can't murder. help single parents and I'm sorry we can't help uh, someone who's out of work as much as we clearly would love to because we've already committed and and won't change our mind on 21 billion dollars a year in tax cuts for higher income earners that's that's the bit that I, I I really struggle to wrap my head around and I think that's the bit that will continue politically morally to be a problem for the labor Party
0: and again coming from a prime minister who what the media term his long cabin log cabin story is becoming increasingly threadbare the more he, sort of defends keeping these tax cuts for the rich. It's because yeah, it comes back to look, I'd really love to help you. But as, you know, as we said in the previous podcast, uh, we've spent all our money on submarines. <laughs> tax cuts for rich people. That is like a it, it's like a running sore on their credibility. Because again the, the media have picked up on and I and I think they're correct to a degree that with this budget, Chalmers has tried to destroy once and for all the apparition that labour are poor economic managers because of its magical surplus is suddenly delivered, much to the ire of the opposition, who never managed one in in uh, nine years of being in government. But the whole crit- like the credibility of being good economic managers and not just keeping but then defending, Multi-billion-dollar tax cuts for the wealthiest people in society—just it just doesn't add up. And you know, we 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 entered, you know, we we called it. We we said that they needed to do, to deal with that in this budget, and we didn't expect them to, and they didn't. And now people are saying, oh, it'll, it'll be the next budget. Well, the next budget might actually be an a, an election budget. And are they really going to take away tax cuts for rich people leading up to an election? And look, they might. And that might dem- that might be a big clue as to when the election's going to get called but I, so I promise we, we promised that we wouldn't get into the <laughs> policy, political side of things so I'm gonna I'm gonna take my political hat off and go back to my policy hat
2: yeah, um, I've, I've, I think though uh, uh, elena the the politics around that particular choice and in this particular budget is is important framing and it's it's not possible I don't think to understand at a, at a macro level what happened on Tuesday night without thinking about the politics. So, yeah. you know, one, one of the things that we didn't touch on so far is the fact that the Treasurer handed down the first surplus since the GFC. And I, and I really don't think that has anything to do with anything other than the politics and the optics of Labor being able to say we delivered a surplus and nine years the coalition failed to. And here we are in our first year, and we've delivered a surplus through good economic management. And, and look, let's be clear: a surplus or a deficit for a national budget is nonsense. It really, doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's not like you or I running our household funds. If the government needs to pay off more debt, it just prints more money. Quite literally, it just creates more money in the money uh, in the monetary uh, supply. It really isn't that big a deal. But the optics of showing that we've managed our, our budget and our finances and we've made some difficult choices and all the rest of it is pure politics on this one.
0: I mean, we're the only country in the world who obsesses over budget deficits and surpluses the way we do. And the rest of the world, the US, Japan, the UK, they've been running Billion trillion dollar su- uh, deficits.
2: Bill Clinton was the last American president to run a surplus. Yeah, in America, Bill Clinton. Well,
0: yeah, exactly. And like an. And a Rhianna,
2: do you know to- who that is? <laughs> you remember who who Bill Clinton is? So you I must- know of
1: Bill Clinton because I was around when Hillary Clinton and he was the the candidate's husband. So <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> I was going to say yeah, just. <laughs>
1: Hilary's
0: who husband, he yeah. is in
2: Hillary's husband.
0: Hillary's husband. But um, yep. but but that's the thing, right? It, you know, and look, and we should sort of point out to, the, to our listeners: surplus just means that the government is not spending all of the tax revenue that they have acquired over the over the last year. And sure, well, like when times are good and there's there's so much revenue coming and they don't know what to do with it, sure, run a surplus. But in a time where you know, people are living in tents, and people are starving. Hanging on to money that you could otherwise have deployed into the benefit of your own citizens is an interesting choice, and it's yeah. a very political choice, in, in, as you in, said.
2: Interest, in, interesting, interesting uh, choice yeah. indeed. Yeah,
0: yes. I think
1: there is space to not be running at a deficit if especially a significant one or, or something like that I think you're right if it's not something to obsess over either but I don't think that a surplus should be given the credit that it is and like it is this oh my goodness look how amazing we are look it's all green and we're shining green look at it like yeah. it, it's that's not really what it is and really it means that there's money sitting in running it a be
2: used that, that's right and look you know running a deficit and spending more money than you're earning is the sort of thing that governments can and should do and because they're in a much better position to do it than private enterprise might be right so it's how they spend that money and if you go back a couple of budgets during the height of the pandemic the big issue that we had with what the coalition was doing with their budgets, they were spending a lot of money. They were stimulating the economy, but it was, it was touch paper. It wasn't going anywhere. It didn't last. It didn't create long term economic benefit, productive capacity for the economy. There were no nation building projects in there. It was just a cash splurge without that kind of forethought and vision that you really want when you're spending tens of billions of dollars in debt spending right so that's really the key point that we need to look at and say if it's a deficit where is that money going and similarly if you've got a surplus if you're running a surplus in the midst of overlapping crises then i don't I don't really think that's the, the, the good economic management. It's certainly not good social management.
0: Well, the, the Saturday paper cartoonist John, John Podelka, I think. Has, has been, been on now. fire.
2: Yes. Yeah, regularly. Hi, John.
0: Hi, John. Yeah. Uh, he, he tweeted during the week saying, it's always a bit sad to see that people weren't mad about cynical wedge politics. They were just mad about being on the wrong end of it. Mm. And that kind of sums up the surplus in, in my mind a little bit. Because how how much of that uh, you know how much of that surplus is around being seen as good economic managers and 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 busting myths one hundred percent of it one
2: hundred percent of it
0: well how, and also like, how much of it is about um, absolutely sticking it to the opposition you the know, other hundred I mean, percent of it the other hundred percent because it is it is almost a revenge piece it is a, it is a long awaited slap and in
2: the face yep.
0: elaborate revenge on the debt and deficit disaster narrative that you know helped destroy the last Labour government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, back to the budget. So, <laughs> so look and look. Overall, I think, as, as you said in the beginning, Steve, it was a good budget. It did do good stuff. It, it was, it, it did a lot of good stuff, and it spread it very, very thinly, which is probably the, the key criticism of it because they could have solved a number of problems by spreading it a little bit thicker in certain areas of the economy, and they they chose oh, the nowhere. Tool. They did spread it thickly. That is our foreign, uh, what is it, our
1: defence funding. I think we know exactly where it has been put deeply. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I don't know your opinions on it. I think that is the peak of political agendas that we all knew was going to be obviously a, a key and very large part of the budget. I've torn into perspectives because I think we are sitting in a very interesting political climate globally. and. Those sorts of investments have a lot of flow on effects, even in terms of jobs in certain areas and those sorts of things. We're not, we're not silly about that. Um, but it's a lot of money when we're going, you know, we're talking billions and billions of dollars there. I think it's 19 billion just towards the, the submarine spending or 5 billion for the submarine spending. Like a lot of money. And we're going 1 billion goes to your energy funding. You know, it's, like when we're doing right. the comparison of those numbers, we know where the money's gone. We we yeah. actually do, and it's right there on paper.
0: Yeah, AUKUS and uh, our our foreign policy stuff. you're right. in in, in terms of budgetary thing, is is it is a massive black hole in which they are cheerfully shoveling money, but we're actually planning like it's, it's going to probably at this rate probably going to end up into a series. Um, to, to dive into that and, and, and um, analyze that properly, so uh, we won't derail this one by going by going there mm. just now. But you are right to raise defence and, and foreign policy as a, you know, as as a as a drag on 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 the budget in, in some ways because it does come back to the whole we can't lift people out of poverty sufficiently out of poverty. Because we're playing submarines, you know. I'm sure the people who are struggling to pay their rents are going to be so gratified to know that Australia's borders are secure while they're living in a tent.
2: There are th- things in our economy and and things that contribute to our both sides of the of the budget in terms of both our expenses and our and our revenue that just weren't talked about and just weren't touched during Tuesday night's budget. They're absolutely there in the budget papers and we just don't want to talk about them. So where's the money going is where I'm headed with this. But Mm -hmm. things like capital gains tax discount, negative gearing as a tax offset, the uh, age pension income tax-free threshold, which is currently set at $100,000 a year. It's the only income that you can earn where you don't pay tax on it. But self-funded retirees should be able to live quite comfortably without paying further taxes is a bollocks excuse, to to be quite frank. The superannuation contribution and income tax discounts, you know, you pay 15% on your superannuation income. And we've tinkered with that by saying over $3 million dollars a year, the additional income that you earn will now be taxed at 30%. Whereas realistically, we're talking about money that should probably be taxed at 47.5% if you earned it any other way. So mm. all of these things are still in the budget. They're still costing us money and didn't rate a mention at all. But they cost as much as the NDIS. They cost as much as or more than we spend on Job Seeker. They cost, you know, like, and yet- mm. We're we're okay with that. And everything mm. that I have just mentioned is disproportionately in favor of high income and high net worth or wealthy individuals. It's mm. all going to the to the richest in society and the highest income earners in society. I didn't even mention the State Street tax cuts. All of everything that I've earned is the stuff that's that I've mentioned is the stuff that's just baked into the economy that we didn't want to touch this time around, but you know, like I hope that tent's keeping you warm tonight.
0: And Labor and, and the Greens and the Coalition are, you know, engaged in a, in a really unedifying uh, spectacle of fighting over the you know, Labor's sort of so-called ten billion dollar housing fund, which is severely inadequate as a policy. It's not going to, it's not even going to begin to touch the sides of the housing crisis and they're yelling at each other over, from the Greens' perspective, it being an inadequate policy and I'm, I'm forced to agree with them and then Labor are trying to wedge the Greens by accusing them of denying people you know, housing. And it's like, well, sure, but when, when is the first house going to get built, guys, because it's not like we can pass it today and then tomorrow we start putting homeless people into houses. That's not how this thing is going to work.
2: Yeah. Uh, Jason Clare came out yesterday with some comment about it's Mother's Day on Sunday and mothers and their kids are going to be sleeping in their cars, but the Greens have voted with the coalition to block our housing fund. I'm like, it's going to be at least 12 months before that fund does anything. Like, It's not even going to begin to build a single dwelling for at least 12 months. And here you are blaming the Greens for the fact that we're not going to see urgent action. Well, that's that's your bloody fault. You're not treating it like a crisis. You're treating it like an investment opportunity. And yeah, women and their children will wake up cold in a car that they had to sleep in on Sunday morning. And it will be because we're not treating the housing crisis like a housing crisis. We're treating it like a political game.
0: Yeah, I, I think lost in all of the argy over building social housing and public housing is the reality that the government, both at state and federal level, is going to have to start purchasing housing. And uh, I mean, look, our housing, our, our affordable housing, as all of our platforms are currently always under review. But this is my, I have to stress this is my opinion. This is my little manifesto. This is not, you know, Democrats' policy. It is something that I'm going to be putting forward to our policy team to have a look at and do, do the research on because this is also unresearched. But I think we, we need to start not just carving back some of those incentives that have turned housing into an, a speculative investment, but also start encouraging those vest- those investors to start div- divesting themselves of those properties and put them back into government hands. So it's not just ta- you know clawing back the capital can- gains discount and cancelling negative gearing, which are current Democrats' um, uh, policy positions, but it's things like, like implementing a base standard of rental housing quality. So <laughs> yes. it has to be insulated. It has to be secure. There has mm-hmm. to be heating and cooling. Those sort of things, which a lot of uh, you know, you know, mum and dad landlords, because that's how they always get to get, get framed <laughs> by the media, sure. will probably be up in arms because they're going to then actually have to invest in the, and apologies for language, the shit boxes that they rent to vulnerable people at incredibly high prices, because it, it's been a truism for centuries that being a slum lord is really profitable. And you know they would go. Well, we can't afford to keep these properties, and and Good. you know if I, I if I was in government, I'd be going. That's fine. That's fine the government actually. will buy it off you. Sell it. We will make it habitable, yeah. and then we will rent it as social housing. I think in terms of that, what that in
1: particular is kind of reiterating is that same rhetoric of as long as we just have more places to rent. Um, that that's going to address our crisis but what you're actually saying exactly there is that we still don't have quality investment you're still going to be paying the same amount anyway and you have no actual standard of living alongside reducing cost of living as well and I think that's when we're looking at this as a kind of one there is an economic element to it but as always there's a there's a humanitarian and a social element to it as well and what's actually the things that we should be doing in developing social and affordable housing or alternative housing options whilst we're investing in all these things, we actually need to be looking at them practically and what are they as long-term solutions as well. And that is not a quick fix. Now, what I think is beneficial about this, we already have such a big issue within our construction space of actually being able to complete construction projects so I think there is a a very pressing thing that just building more houses is not going to be fixed and it's not actually going to be possible either you know and so I think there is part of that 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 is a realistic consideration um but this build-to-rent solution, it's still not looking at long-term options for people of owning homes or or being able to – you are still relying on the landlord at the end of the day, which I think is a, a really challenging position to have kind of based a lot of their
0: their housing budget platform on. Yeah, and and the, the issue of renters' rights in Australia is a live one because we have – over the last 40 years, we have engineered our society – to be a, a rent-based precariat. A lot of people rent in Europe. Like, like it, it is unusual in, in some countries, in Germany in particular, to own a home. The obsession with home ownership is, is a uniquely sort of Australian and, and to a degree United States one. So if you want to move your society to being one where people just rent for most of their lives, that's fine. But you need to ensure that renters' rights and, and the stability and security of tenure is there, and we've engineered it in a way that we have a. We're moving toward a, a situation where even highly paid professionals like you and I, Steve, we're both renters. If society is moving to a situation where you and I might rent for the rest of our lives, there, there is that there is a sense in Australia that renting is a temporary thing until you go and buy your home, and only people who are terrible at saving or can't manage their lives. Ie vulnerable people are the ones who rent all their lives. But if you get into a situation where, otherwise, you know, successful, highly paid people are renting their whole lives, then that dynamic has to change dramatically because those people are going to demand stability and security of tenure. If we're going to move to a situation where people are renting their whole lives, we need to move to a European model of. Know, strong renter's rights and strong security of tenure yeah. in your rental home. But and that we, is a discussion that the country has yeah, not right. even begun to scratch the surface of.
2: It's, somewhere in here is is the idea that everyone deserves the, the opportunity to live a dignified life, right? Yeah. And, and a dignified life means also that you're not at the whim of your landlord or the real estate agent who can decide at any sort of real given point at the moment that actually you you need to leave and we 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 don't have any protections in place in australia we 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 don't you know when you look at the the way in which renting is structured in australia and the rules and the regulations around it like as you say we we have no quality controls around the 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 house itself or the unit or or any of the the cleanliness of it, the finish of it, whether the appliances work or don't work at any given time, how long it takes to repair things and and fix faults, all of those sorts of things just aren't, aren't well regulated. But they're At the same time, at any given time in Australia, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of vacant dwellings in Australia. Right now, right around the country, we have hundreds of thousands of vacant dwellings. And some of those you look at and go, oh, that house being renovated, fine. Some of them you go, well, that's a holiday rental and it's the off season. But just down the road from that holiday rental that's sitting vacant during the off season, is a family living in the back of a, a van because they can't afford rent. Yeah. And, and we allow one and we lionize one, you know, like building a property portfolio. we seen as something that people should aspire to. And at the same time, we're creating an environment where more and more people are being locked out, even of the rental market. Forget home ownership, but even the rental market is being locked out. I saw something uh, earlier today. It, it was looking at if I receive one of the various support payments, the single parenting payment, or job seeker, or a study, or, or one of those, what rentals are available to me that I could afford? And nationally, I think in our capital cities, there were thirty-one. Jeez. 31 that a single person that they could afford on their own nationally like that is an appallingly small number and it's some like for some groups it was zero there are no there are no dwellings that you can afford like on your own you either have to be in a share house you have to be with your parents you have to be with a partner at a bare minimum just to be able to like get the keys to some of these places, there were so thirty-one. I, yeah, this
1: this was something that personally I was I've been looking at very as a really kind of key consideration for myself. I've been at a point for a little while now, have saved for a deposit for a place of what I thought would be a reasonable amount, and it was. It is a reasonable amount. When I went to the bank, the challenge is is that my actual earnings on a yearly basis, even though I could pay a mortgage on my own, it would tight as everybody who just buys a house is however they go that you won't actually be able to so either i need a partner with me i would need my parents as a guarantor um and then when i looked you know there, there's obviously you know you have your first home buyers grants and that sort of thing the first home buyers grant i think it has to be a six hundred thousand dollar over home value I wasn't looking at $600,000 homes. I was looking at, you know, $500,000 or something. So, I would need to be looking at – so, I'm actually not eligible for those. But if I was to then buy a second property later on, I would then no longer be eligible for the payment because I already own a property. Yeah. So, when I then to go buy a place with my partner or sell something and then move on uh, yeah. to something, I would no longer be eligible. So, for me, what that's basically meant is that I'm now going, okay, so – I've got a set. I'm living at home with my family. I pretty much will need to live at home until my partner is also ready to move out of home or I need yeah. to go and rent in that time period and I don't see, a, you know, at whatever point, I don't see a point of renting to, to the whole concept of paying somebody else's mortgage mm. when I was at a position that I thought I'd be able to buy a home. I'm in a very fortunate position where I can live at home. I, I can. That's I'm,
0: right. Yeah. You know,
1: I don't work too far away. It, it's a it's a position of, of a lot of privilege that not every Australian can do. No. Not every young Australian, not older Australians. You're looking at later and later people are moving out. And then when they do move out, a lot of the time it's, I'm going to have to rent either for a period of time or ongoing. Yeah. And I think we still have the Australian dream of you want to own a home or do whatever, but it's not a practical option for most people now, especially when you're looking at those cost of livings. You know, I went from one week to the next week. If I had gone the week before to the bank, I would have actually been, still would have been very close, but we could have played around and been able to make it. But the cost of living now is so high Mm. and the estimates of how much you have to spend on a week are so high that it's just not an option for for people now and yeah, yeah when you're talking about that such a large option that that's exactly what it is that you, yeah. you're not going to be able to and so we have to look at rental affordability and rental security as a matter of priority because mm. that's the only option for a lot of Australians
2: the argument will be there Rhiannon, that says then move further away move you mm. know like there's plenty yeah, of regional towns
0: of yeah there's- <laughs>
2: You know uh, that that's the thing. Like you, you, just move further away. But what we're essentially saying is move further away from work, further away from study, further away from your parents, further away from your family. Move into a new community that you're not a part of. That you know that's not a small choice. Mm. But the the idea, this sort of blase uh, attitude that says oh, just just move, move further out, move. As as though that will fix things without addressing any of the economic, social, health, or education things that come with where you live is nonsense.
0: It overlooks the fact that you're trading, shall we say, like a you know a lower mortgage or lower rent for higher transport costs because you're going to be driving or catching public transport more frequently Potentially to go back. Salary to as well. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. to go back and visit your family and your community and that sort of thing. Now, um, getting back to the vacancy thing, Victoria introduced mm-hmm. a vacancy tax in 2018. Mm-hmm. So if a home is sitting vacant for more than six months of a year, I think the homeowner gets charged 1% of, I think it might be the land tax. I, I did look it up and now I've forgotten yeah. it's part of the course. Uh, I think i think <laughs> I regular. regularists is used to that from me. Uh, Queensland is considering uh, introducing one. It really should um, should be national and it really should be aimed at Airbnb because so many of these mums and dads uh, landlords have worked out that rather than renting to a long-term tenant, they can put their house on Airbnb. And, you know, even if it is vacant for six months of the year, the prices that they charge on Airbnb means that they're actually making more money than they would in having a tenant in there for 12 months. And that, that I think is one of the unknown factors that has contributed to the rental crisis Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and the crunching of, of, you know, rental availability is because so many properties, particularly in regional towns, have yep. been taken out of the rental market to go on the Airbnb market at quadruple quintuple the price. And again, it's, it's, it's all about, it, you know, we tax to incentivize behaviour yeah that that is part of 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 the the mix of taxes, and we should probably be taxing people to incentivize them to put their houses back into the long-term rental market in the short term to help solve the immediate rental crisis mm. as well as all the other uh, options that we've just discussed. And because as as Rhiannon has so eloquently lay laid down, that's the impact it's having. So speaking of taxing behaviours or incentivising behaviours through tax, mm-hmm. Almost like clockwork, you you could set uh, what's the word a a standard feature of budgets that when it comes time to clawing back some revenue to reduce the deficit disaster, they hit up uh, smokers. And so obviously there's a big rise on on tobacco again in this budget. I I've never smoked, and my mother, who gave up smoking decades ago, was horrified when she realised. How much smoking is, you know, a smoking habit is now going to cost somebody because back in her day, she's in her 70s, um, you know, smoking was cheap and accessible. And now it's, it's, it really is becoming almost a luxury pastime. And combining that with the uh, the, the ban on vapes. And an unfortunate reality is that I think I read somewhere that the, the instances of people smoking in high socioeconomic areas is probably about 5% of the population. But people who smoke in lower socioeconomic areas, it, it trends up to about 16%. This is another instance when we talk about so much of the of the budget being uh, skewed toward uh, high wealth and, and high income earners. The, the carrots are skewed toward high income, high net worth uh, individuals, but the sticks seem to be perpetually aimed at low income people. And incidentally, the tax that we're about to claw back on smokers is higher than then the resources rent tax we're going to be clawing back from the gas companies.
2: Clawing back is an interesting way to describe that. We're <laughs> So let, let's touch on the smoking thing for a minute. I, I thought that was an interesting piece of policy. The cost of smoking on society, the, the impact on people's health, all of those sorts of mm. things. Can't question the, the impact, but you're right. It's a policy that is well and truly targeted at lower uh, socioeconomic economic people. We didn't increase the alcohol Excise, which would hit wine drinkers, gin drinkers, that kind of thing. We didn't put in place a, like something there. We chose smoking. And the way it was announced, so the health minister last week before the budget, to the week before the budget, gave a, a, an address at the National Press Club. He announced his policy. We're going to increase the excise and we're going to target vaping. We're going to target that industry. We're going to get people off them. We're going to reduce the rates of smoking down below 10% nationally, etc., etc. Right, so he made it sound like there was a direct connection between this extra revenue and these new programs. Um, the reality was less than a, a quarter of the money that's being raised is actually being spent. Far, far less is actually going towards those those programs to, to encourage people to give up smoking. It was mostly about revenue raising, and 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 as you say, the amount of revenue that we're raising. Is, is not that high an amount, but it's well and truly being targeted at those lower income households. The petroleum resource rent tax thing, though, is just almost embarrassingly small. And it turns out that most yeah. analysis of the policy agree that all it's really doing is bringing forward amounts of money that we were going to receive anyway. So there's no actual new money that we're getting off the gas companies we're just getting the same money sooner
0: yeah that that was a distinction that i think passed a lot of people by initially and then it's only been the uh shall we say economically minded um journalists who have sort of dug into it and gone hang on a
2: second it's telling it is such a pittance like Australia yeah. taxes our resources so low compared to other countries. I think Qatar is is a country that exports a similar amount of uh, natural gas or, or uh, LNG to uh, Australia, and they they bring in twenty times more tax revenue than we do for the for the same amount of of uh, revenue. Effectively, Norway. Um, receives significantly more tax revenue than we do from its uh, fossil fuel exports whilst actually selling a smaller amount of it. We are nowhere. We are giving this stuff away and literally we are giving it away because those same companies also get tax breaks on their infrastructure investment. We build the roads, we build the ports for them, we build the rail uh, infrastructure for them, we give them uh, their fuel excise back because they're not using roads um, as though that's what the fuel excise gets used for, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. I think the, the, the Australia Institute a couple of weeks ago estimated that collectively Australian governments subsidise the fossil fuel industry in Australia to the tune of $14, $15 billion dollars annually and then we don't get any like, money from them in return. It's, it's obscene.
0: I mean, the, the fact that the gas companies weren't too fussed, like welcomed this this PRRT change. It's not even a f- rounding
2: error on their revenue statements. No. They're getting less, no. like, they don't care. They, they don't even see $600 million a year on their revenue statements. It's, it's, it's literally peanuts for them.
0: Yeah. And it, it, you know, taxation. I forget whose whose quote I'm about to, to murder, but taxation being an exercise in plucking a, a chicken with the least amount of squawking kind of thing. In 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 the case of the prrt adjustment, that chicken lined up, sat in its la- sat in your lap, and said, "Please, you know, please, you know, take a couple of feathers. I don't mind." You know, it, it really is laughable. It and- molted.
2: It wasn't what <laughs> right. It molted. It dropped <laughs> Saturday- a couple of. It dropped a couple of feathers. And, and we're happy to collect them. That's yes. the analogy there.
1: Yes. There's nothing actually done for it. No, you know,
0: it's It really is obscene the way if, if Qatar and Norway, like Norway and Qatar have booming uh, resources industries who are highly profitable, highly active, and they are paying tons of tax in comparison to what Australia is. And if a government were to... You know, try and bring the taxation level on our resources industries up to match Qatar and Norway, then the industry would absolutely lose their minds and insist that we cannot possibly operate in this country. Uh, these will be stranded assets. Yada 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 yada. Goodbye. And putting 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 my my radical socialist hat off, as as you accused me of last time. If I were in government, I'd go. That's okay. The government will buy those stranded assets from you. We will keep operating those assets in order f- to allow the people working there to keep their jobs, and we'll take both the profits and the tax. Thank you very much. And We wouldn't would, even need to would, buy would, it.
2: We wouldn't even need to buy it from them. It's just like, yeah. okay, go. Go
0: yeah, then. Yeah, we'll, we'll renationalise them.
2: Leave the keys. And,
0: yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, if I was a resources minister, I would absolutely call their bluff. Dare them to leave as the, you know, the Abbott government dared the car manufacturers to leave. Let's be
2: clear, though. This is an industry that we don't want to continue. Well, that too. We want them to go. We want them to yeah. shut down. We don't want gas anymore. We want, like, we're actively, remember the, the whole climate emergency thing? We want them oh, to yeah, go. On yeah. well,
0: we that thing, yeah.
2: <laughs> we don't want them to stay. We want them to go. And in more, the meantime, yeah. I at least want them to pay their damn taxes.
0: Yeah, well, let's tax them and let's tax them literally into oblivion then. What are their options? Like
1: realistically, either they're going to go overseas and find a new, I don't know, plot of land. I don't know how they sort of map those things out, right? Okay. That that's like a genuine consideration, I I, I suppose, but what happens with all of the setup that they have cuz all of their infrastructure investment here that they keep talking about, right? The other option is they pay more and actually still making a a shit ton of money. <laughs> like they be real, they're yes. Gonna it, like where that $600 million is going to go somewhere else, but it's not really mattered to them, you know. They're, they're still going to keep running it. The things we're talking about putting in place, whether it's increasing taxes to them or anything like that, the impact is going to be they're going to have to pay it, pay more. And so I think that's when you then start getting into that political dialogue of why are we still not doing that, who's funding who and what are the other, the conversations that are then happening in the background around yeah, exactly. that. And I think, you know, an underlying part of... of politics that there are those conversations happening, those tax cards are happening for a reason. And I don't think we're completely blindsided to why that might be happening as well. But realistically, it just seems like
0: it just seems really stupid, like just
1: tax them. I don't know. It's not (laughs) just
0: tax them. The level of state capture for this country, both at state and federal level, is becoming more and more apparent. It's It's not so much that they're no longer hiding it. They're no longer trying to hide it. Yeah, you know we are we are wholly bought.
2: Embarrassingly so. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and we and we look at the US and go, gosh, you know, who want to live over there with with yeah, they're a wholly owned corporation, as as the sovereign citizens would say, overlooking the fact that in some ways we're probably worse. In some, yeah, yeah. So, I know you've got to run away in a oh, second. I was going to, I did just want to yeah. touch on one other
1: area, even yes. if it pushes it back. That's all good. Sure. Uh, hopefully you guys don't mind. Um, And it was particularly the, what you said before, Alana, about clawing back, of that we're clawing some things back. And one of those areas that that seems to have occurred in is with the NDIS, yes. Um, mm. and I think critical to this conversation, at least in a lot of the conversations I've been having with people. We're talking about $15 billion that they're looking at clawing, quite literally, I think. Is yes, one of 15. The articles, yep. Clawing back $15 billion. And that wasn't by changing eligibility criteria or any- doing anything practical. Basically, we're going to stop people accessing the scheme and reducing it from 14% growth over the next five years, 10 years, I think it is, down to 8% quite significant action in regards to the overall scheme. I think it was really dis- – this was a, a point of disappointment. I thought this was really disappointing over what has been regarded as a international comparison as one of the best kind of social – action pieces it, it's one of the biggest social changes since the introduction of medicare and i think what's really been highlighted is just how many people have actually needed it which is even more than they predicted and we're still looking at a very small proportion of australians are actually accessing the ngis in, in comparison to the number of australians that could access it i was concerned about, about that figure of the 15 billion dollars being clawed back from it um, and the impact that that's going to have on participants
2: I think there were there were two elements to what they were talking about in terms of over the forward estimates. What money are we saving? And there were there was fifty nine billion dollars that was coming from reducing that rate of growth. So it's at thirteen point eight percent at the moment. It's one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing, area of the federal budget. Bringing that down to eight percent over the next four years will save fifty nine billion dollars in total over that period like that's that that was that part Mm -hmm. of it and then there was that second part around actual cost reductions by addressing administrative inefficiencies and and ineffectiveness by looking at the way procurement might be done by looking at corruption and fraud and misuse that might be in the system all of that kind of stuff the, the total savings in the budget which was not mentioned at all was 74 billion dollars it's a huge it's a huge piece of saving in the budget for something that they didn't mention and i think to to your point rhiannon it's it's a concern especially given you know we're talking about not having as many people as we thought able to access it that, mm-hmm. that raises some concern. But $15 billion in savings from efficiencies mm-hmm. always rings alarm bells, especially when we start talking about cutting back and, and, and looking at fraud in the system after the mm-hmm. RoboDebt Scheme and the RoboDebt Royal Commission. I don't think anyone hears that kind of program with anything other than a great deal of cynicism and dread.
1: And look, having spoken to a few people in the sector, I think there is some genuine concerns of what have become legacy issues from previous forms of disability services and the way that it was sort of run previously that have then kind of carried over. And there are genuine, whether it was fraudulent sort of things or very unethical management of funds with different organisations. I think Bill Shorten has been really outspoken around some of those concerns as, as the Disability Minister or the Minister for the NDIS, sorry. There is genuine concerns. When we're talking about billions of dollars of concerns, though, I'm very curious how that's going to come about.
2: Um, <laughs> Look, if if we really wanted to save money from that kind of thing, like where we look at waste in the system and inefficiencies in terms of administration and misplaced effort and all of that kind of stuff, then go and look at the unemployment services market. Like we spend $9 billion a year on those private job providers, job provider networks and and registered training organisations that are subsidiary of one of those private job providers so that we can enforce mutual obligations on people that are are out of work. We have an economy that's structured so that we always do have a group of people who are out of work and we're spending $9 billion basically enforcing punitive mutual obligations for a group of people that we are keeping in poverty and we've spoken about the job seeker rates and giving that money to a series of private providers who really don't have a great deal of success finding people jobs. So let's cut the mutual obligations let's cut the private uh, job uh, networks let's reinstate the the commonwealth employment service which everybody loved like people talk about it glowingly as the thing that was actually there to help you find work that was mm. suited to you and your circumstances and abilities rather than this mutual obligation bullshit where people are being forced to send applications to jobs that they will never get mm. like that kind of thing 9 billion dollars a year that could be saved. So this money that we're talking about on NDIS, you go, like why why hit I that up when are- we continue to waste it over here?
1: And look, I think there are parts of it with the NDIS that are legitimate administrative changes that they're making, like they're yeah. they're reducing the number of times that you have to do a plan review, you know, Great. because somebody has had a disability for their entire life that isn't changing. Why do I need to go for a plan review every single year? Yeah. Instead, I have a, a three- of... or a five-year plan, and yeah. if something changes, I can go through a review process. Yeah. Or I, we have a small buffer amount in there that yeah, is yeah. accessible or if it get if you have you know uh, something gets worse you know um, yeah. something like that you know your plan managers they they're going to change so that there are higher trained plan managers for more complex needs or, or complex situations and and then a general plan manager for your everyday sort of my sister who has a a hearing impairment. She probably doesn't need to go to somebody that has a higher level of training and the funding that goes into the higher level of training for that. There there are some of those practical changes. I can see how those are going to actually shift those administrative focus. Um, But I still am concerned about practically what that looks like at your very end piece. What is the amount of support that people are going to be getting? Because we're talking about huge numbers, huge numbers here. When we're talking about Billions of dollars in comparison to the number of people in the system. I'm concerned how it got to that in the first place as well, but it's enormous. And I, I, I'm, I think a lot of people are concerned about how that's going to not impact on people's support and actually guaranteeing that the NDIS is doing the thing that it said it was going to do in the first
2: place. If, if, I, I, if I were to, to repeat something that uh, Elena said early on in the podcast, um, budgets are about choices. And there have been some very interesting ones in this budget.
0: Yes. You know, getting back to your job seeking uh, analogy, if we wanted to remove waste from the system in the NDIS, well, let's look at the NDIS providers. The privatisation of support for the NDIS, I think, is this, this penchant that governments of all stripes have to turn everything into a market, I think, is something that needs to be scrutinised more heavily than it is. This, this notion that markets are inherently good and therefore we should marketise everything, I mean, over the last 30 years has, has ultimately demonstrated that the marketization of essential services, whether they be power, electricity, water, job seeker services, disability services, aren't necessarily a good idea and aren't necessarily getting a return on investment and a value for money. Because when you bring people into an essential service who have a profit motive, that's when the rorting and the fraud begins because they will prioritize getting their profit over actually delivering that essential service. And it's disappointing coming from Bill Shorten who was the father of the NDIS, who is the reason why we have the NDIS in the first place. And for him to come back into government, back into that role, and then be looking at stripping billions of dollars from the NDIS he has kind of flagged that one of the priorities is looking
1: at those unethical providers and that sort of thing and where is actually the money going. And there is a lot of people that have entered into the disability market on the idea that it's basically quick money. You can get some level of registration or or actually no registration, which is a whole nother factor to come into it. And I think that's a, a not a budget related issue. But I think he has said that there are those concerns, whether that's being approached in the correct way or not. I'm not sure. And I don't think the budget has alleviated those concerns either.
0: Yeah, and look, the the diving into the NDIS is probably going to be a topic for uh, another poll. It's a whole nother. <laughs> and, and Crikey have done a, a, a an incredible um, series some time ago on – the rorting and fraud in the NDIS with with dodgy providers. So I'll have to dig that up and try and stick that in the show notes. Before you run away, is there anything else from a, you know, we, we bring you on to represent the youth, as, as I like to call them. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any, any outstanding items from a youth perspective that we've possibly not covered um, in adequate detail? No, I think we have. I think obviously housing and cost of
1: living affordability are always going to be primary concerns. I don't think yeah. we've had a significant. There's not really been any investment in education in ter- tertiary funding, and significantly less than actually the last budget that we saw. I know we we had a lot of discussion around those additional payments for you know TAFE students, um, vet and all those sorts of things. That wasn't in here, which I think is disappointing to always all see. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where it's a bit of what's not in there always, uh, of what could be done. I do like, I I personally like the approach of a long-term. I was comforted by that there is a government that's not just looking at it. And maybe it's because we've not got an election budget. I think that's always worth considering. It is a long-term approach, and I think it seems a very practical one. They have tried to spread thinly, almost see what works and goes, we'll do a bit here, we'll do a bit here. We're trying to help out as many people as possible. And I think that's going to have flow ons to young people, which was something I was really happy to see. Is more could more be done? Absolutely. It's a starting point, basically. And I think that's very much what this budget was overall. It seems to be a starting point, even more so than the original budget that they the last budget seems to be a we're fixing all the things we didn't agree with from the that were hanging over from the government this really seems to be setting the foundations for what are our and priorities it's
0: Hello, editing Alana here. That was the moment that we lost Rhiannon partway through, I, th- I think, a very important and powerful point that she was making, which is massively disappointing because she was really on a roll. Anyway, uh, Steve and I will now wrap up the pod and you can get on with your life. Any any last bits and pieces? I, I think Rhiannon's raised an incredibly uh, important point around we, we seem to have a government with a vision, and a, and a vision for the budget and a, and a long-term plan, which is
2: not. Yeah, I, I I think from Joe Hockey's first budget in 2013, 2014, through uh, until Josh Frydenberg's last budget just before the election in 2022, we had a government that was fairly determined to punch down on our most vulnerable. They were looking at cutting services, cutting back benefits, stopping indexation Mm -hmm. on benefits, that kind of stuff. Like that really was the mode in which they operated on for the better part of of nine years, except when they wanted to try and win an election, at which point they, they shifted slightly. It's nice to see a government in this case who no longer seem determined to put people backwards so i think our critique of this budget is that we've seen changes that are a definite improvement and a definite change of direction and our, our criticism is that we don't feel they've done enough as quickly in some of the areas where we would like to see more and more urgency but that's even that is a is a significant shift from where we were just 12 months ago
0: Apologies for Rhiannon's rather abrupt exit from the episode. One of the perils of not being able to record together is that you are held hostage to your internet connection. This discussion really made me consider what economists might call the sunk costs in the budget. As Steve mentioned, all the ongoing costs to the budget that we simply never talk about, like negative gearing or the capital gains tax discount or various tax breaks for vested interests and lobby groups that get carried over every year. It does make me wonder if we'll ever have a government that's brave enough to put every part of the budget on the table when reviewing our expenditure and revenue, and clearing the slate and starting over again on a lot of it. In the Budget Explainer episode, I did stress how much I despise comparing the federal budget to a household budget, but with the current cost of living and housing crises hitting Australia hard – I'm sure many of you are reviewing your current overheads and working out where savings can be made. I'm facing a rent increase of anywhere between $150 and $240 a week, depending on whether or not I can secure a new home. So I'm certainly reviewing my budget. If you sit down with a financial advisor to review your budget, the first thing they'll do is look at all your outgoings, since it's easier to cut expenses than find new revenue streams. And this is a complete thought bubble. But I wonder if our system of government has any mechanism for a federal budget equivalent of a financial advisor to go through the budget line by line and challenge the government on items that either need to be amended or cut out altogether. As we said in the episode, Jim Chalmers' argument that the government has done all they can afford on things like investing in social housing or social security payments like JobSeeker don't really stack up when you look at the large and increasing amounts of revenue foregone on tax breaks like negative gearing, superannuation tax concessions, and yes, the dreaded stage three tax cuts. Maybe they need an impartial third party like the Parliamentary Budget Office to go over the budget and point out all the stuff that they could maybe stop spending money on. You know, the government equivalent of having someone tell them to stop eating avocado toast in order to save for a house. Just a thought. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value, and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.